Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. As I record this, it recently turned October, and if you're a chronology nerd like me, that can only mean one thing. Time to flip the page on a calendar. So I did, and this month's baby animal, it's a baby animal's calendar, because I'm not an idiot, was a picture of a baby otter. And I was of two minds on that, because on the one hand, baby otter's fucking adorable, and I get the opportunity to look at a picture of a baby otter, fuck yeah, I'm gonna. But on the other hand, I think part of me was a little bit disappointed. I was hoping for maybe a more seasonally, thematically appropriate animal. Like one associated with Halloween, like a bat or an owl. Or an animal that has Halloween colors, like a tiger. Or a scary animal, like a horse. So at first I was like, why an otter? But the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. Because when you really get down to it, what is an otter, if not a tiny, mustachioed, aquatic werewolf that can suck its own dick. And when you think of it that way, otters get a little bit spookier. And werewolves get a little bit less spooky. Because I bet if you saw a werewolf and were like, Ah! A giant, mustacheless land otter that can't suck its own dick! That werewolf's probably going to stop attacking you and really start rethinking its place in the world. And also start thinking, wait, can I? And that'll buy you at least a few minutes to run away. Anyway, my point is, these calendar people, they know what they're doing. Well, as this intro might be an indicator of, we have, if possible, an even stupider show than usual. So without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is by David Esterhouse. Your rutabagas suck is a pretty mean crop dis. I hope hubs mean to Danny Chase in this synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, David. I don't think I am mean to Danny Chase in this one. Must be having an off week. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 48. October, 1988. Crime and Punishment. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by Albert de Guzman, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited by Barbara Kiesel. Teen Titan Roll Call Cyborg, Starfire, Raven, Nightwing, Beast Boy, Jericho, Wonder Girl, Danny Fucking Chase, and Red Star. Kinda. Previously in New Teen Titans. An indeterminate but seemingly significant amount of comic book time ago, the original Teen Titans met a young Soviet superhero named Leonid Kovar, aka Starfire, but not that Starfire. 
The Titans clashed both ideologically and physically with the superpowered Soviet, but eventually they realized that they were all superpowered teenage crime fighters who liked to wear spandex, so they should be pals, and that maybe if they could learn to get along, so could their respective nations. Then, an indeterminate amount of comic book time later, the new Teen Titans again clashed with Starfire, but not that Starfire, who is now calling himself Red Star, which was probably for the best. Leonid's fiance had been infected with a highly contagious fatal disease, and Leonid was determined to track her down before she spread her infection. Again, Leonid fought his American counterparts, and again, they parted as friends having gained a deeper appreciation for one another's respective humanity. In more recent Titan news, Cyborg's girlfriend-slash-physical therapist, Dr. Sarah Charles, accepted a job in San Francisco as the head of Star Labs West Coast Operations. She told Victor that she didn't want to break up and was committed to making their relationship work. Vic yelled at her for dumping him and stormed off. Then he apologized for being a dick and said he didn't want to break up. Then he yelled at her for dumping him again and stormed off again. They went through this cycle three or four more times, both in New York and when the gang got involved in a storyline in San Francisco that ultimately didn't go anywhere. Then Sarah flew to New York to see a movie with Vic as part of a group date, so maybe they're back together again? Oh, and remember how in maybe the best single issue of this series, Dick helped Donna discover her origin and adoption history? Well, now that never happened. Also, she's never met Wonder Woman, and any similarity between the two heroes is just a big coincidence. Gadzooks! Will Cyborg continue his pattern of yelling and storming off angrily when Sarah points out that she didn't break up with him? Does this book follow the pattern of previous Red Star appearances and deliver a message that promotes peace and understanding between America and the Soviet Union? And am I really supposed to accept that Wonder Woman and Wonder Girl have no connection despite their eerily similar names, appearances, skill sets, and occupations? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, no. This time Cyborg yells and storms off angrily when Beast Boy points out that Sarah didn't break up with him. Oh, good lord no. And, yeah, I guess now they're just the Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton of the DC Universe. I wonder which one of them was in the DCU version of Weird Science. Probably Wonder Woman. A burly Russian dude with a blonde crew cut and a burly Russian lady with a blonde crew cut land their small airplane at a remote hangar in Northern California. A group of men greets them when they land. One of them is like, Hammer! Sickle! Nice to see you! So comrades, here is the deal. Your mission is to totally murder this one dude. I know he's your body. Is that going to be problem? The burly blonde dude, Hammer, is like, Is no problem. But we have other mission as well. Do we not, Sickle? The burly blonde lady, Sickle, is like, Da! We have learned that you guys are traitors to Mother Russia, so now we are totally going to be murdering you as well. Hammer gets out a little sledgehammer that is covered in high-tech circuitry, and Sickle gets out her laser sickle, which, just to be clear, is a sickle that has sort of a lightsaber-style blade, not a laser-flavored frozen treat. Which is a shame. <laughs> 
Once armed with their eponymous weapons, the two superpowered Soviets proceed to gleefully murder the shit out of everyone there. It is pretty brutal. When the duo of death dealers have finished their dark duty, Hammer turns to Sickle and is like, It is too bad we are having to murder our friend, Natasha. Sickle is like, Da, but that is the way the Poroshki crumbles, Boris. Because of course they're named Boris and Natasha. Meanwhile, in nearby San Francisco, the Titans are hanging out at Star Labs, watching from behind a one-way mirror as Sarah Charles does some medical tests on a naked guy with a mullet. From the comments that the gang makes, apparently this guy is pretty hot and has a huge penis. Danny Chase is like, Uh, guys, can we go do something else? It's kind of weird that we're surreptitiously watching Vic's maybe girlfriend give this big-dicked naked weirdo a physical. Beast Boy is like, You shut the fuck up right now, Danny. Wonder Girl is like, Danny, that's very immature. We're not here out of some prurient interest. Sarah is doing some research on people with superpowers. The next person she's testing apparently asked if we could stop by, and since we got here early, Sarah thought it might be scientifically enlightening for us to see the test being done on this gentleman. His name is Eric Forrester, and his mind is like a living computer. Isn't that interesting? Danny is like, uh, I guess, but it's not like any of us has a medical background that might give us any context for what these tests mean, and even if we did, we aren't seeing the test results, we're just seeing a naked guy sitting on an examination table. Is it even legal for us to be here? Donna's like, shut the fuck up, Danny. Beast Boy is like, hey Vic, are you and Sarah still dating? If so, does it bother you watching her talk to that hot naked guy? And if not, does it bother you watching her talk to that hot naked guy? In response, Vic storms out of the room. So, I guess it did bother him. Gar follows his pal out into the streets of San Francisco and apologizes. Vic brushes him off until Gar turns into a lion and suggests that maybe the reason Vic is so upset is that he's mad at himself for not trying harder to make his relationship with Sarah work. Okay, first Danny fucking Chase makes a valid point. Now Beast Boy? the fuck is going on in this comic? Vic is like, fuck you, Beast Boy, you don't get to make valid points, and attacks his emerald admonisher. Marv Wolfman and Julius Schwartz have a little cameo, which would be really cute if Julius Schwartz hadn't sexually harassed so many women. Gar manages to evade Cyborg's assault for a little while, but when he turns into a monkey, Vic finally connects and punches the shit out of the young shapeshifter. Beast Boy goes flying, first knocking over a mohawked punk rocker who was riding by on his motorcycle, then careening off that unfortunate biker into a fruit stand. At this point, Vic realizes that he might have been overreacting ever so slightly, and goes to check in on whether the badly battered Beast Boy is, you know, alive. Turns out he is. Hooray? Gar tosses some money to the fruit vendor and tells him to charge the rest to the Teen Titans account and donate any of the food that got ruined to the homeless. Then he and Cyborg have a little chat. Vic is self-conscious about how robot he looks. Gar is like, Isn't this an arc that you've already went through like four or five times? Get over it already. Sarah's rad, and if you don't think you can make the long-distance thing work, then you should move out here. I'll miss you, but when I do, I'll come visit. Vic says he'll think it over. 
Then he goes to brood for a while and probably gets one of those bread bowls filled with riceroni and E-40 CDs that everyone in San Francisco loves so much. Beast Boy turns to head back to Star Labs, but on the way he bumps into Nightwing, who I guess needed to take a little break from ogling Eric Forrester. I mean, a penis that big, you don't look at all at once. Speaking of which, Eric is just finishing up his testing for the day. Sarah informs him that the Titans have been observing him from behind a two-way mirror for no particular reason, and Eric is like, Cool, hope they like what they saw. Ha, <laughs> who am I kidding? Of course they did. I mean, have you seen me? Maybe I'll go do them a favor and have sex with them. What a charmer. Starfire, Raven, and Wonder Girl, who could hear Eric from their hidey hole, are mulling over this generous offer when their good buddy Leonid Kovar walks in in his Red Star costume. Hi, Red Star! Leonid's superiors have agreed to let the scientists at Star Labs examine him and study his powers as part of some kind of an exchange program or something. Since the Titans are the only people Leonid knows in America, he asked Sarah to see if they could stop by and say hi. When Danny Chase sees Red Star, he's like, Hey, I recognize you from the files my parents kept on you. And Leonid is like, And I recognize that you are an obnoxious little shit who should shut the fuck up. Hooray! Red Star gives a brief recap of his origin. His dad was an archaeologist who was investigating a meteor that crashed in 1908, which seems like a weird thing for an archaeologist to do, but whatever. When he found the meteor, it turned out it wasn't a meteor. It was a UFO. Leonid went inside and started poking buttons, like you do, and now he's got superpowers. Which superpowers? Mostly the generic superpowers of being strong and tough, but he leaves himself a little wiggle room by saying that they are also constantly growing and changing. Good to know. He concludes by saying that he thinks letting Americans study him is a bad idea. But that, as a good Russian, he will do what Gorbachev orders him to do, and this is what Gorbachev ordered him to do. Just as Leonid is finishing his exposition, Eric Forrester walks into the room. Much to everyone's disappointment, he's wearing clothes. Much to everyone's further disappointment, he starts talking. Eric is like, Hey ladies, Wonder Girl, I see you have a wedding ring. What a shame. Big mistake on your part. Hey! I mean, yes, but not in the way you mean, jerk. Eric turns to address Starfire and Raven, and is like, I guess that just leaves the two of you. Now, which one of you should I do sex to first? Big hair? Bird lady? I can do both of you at once or one at a time. Your choice. Starfire gives Eric an unequivocal go fuck yourself, but Raven is like, Oh, um, teehee, I, uh... Would, but I have to do a work. Y yes w work. Th that's it. Eric is like, whatever, you're lost. But seriously, let me know when you change your mind, and I will 100% do sex at you. After he leaves, Donna turns to Sarah Charles and is like, what a jerk. I bet he's not even that good at doing it. Sarah's like, Oh, on the contrary, he had sex with more than half of the women who work here, and they all seem to agree that he is very good at fucking. Very good indeed. Wow. Half the women who work there, huh? I wonder whether that's a higher percentage of Star Labs employees than the percentage that are secretly wildebeest in disguise. Also, 
I bet at least one of the women that Eric slept with was secretly wildebeest. Red Star is like, Dr. Charles, if you are done speculating about the sexual prowess of your other patients, then perhaps we could get started on my tests. Sarah's like, well, I don't know that it's speculation when you have this kind of quantitative data, but sure, we can get started as soon as you're ready. I just thought you might want to hang out here with your friends first. Leonid is like, you were incorrect in that assumption. I wish to return home as soon as possible. The stench of freedom burns my Soviet nostrils. Let's go. On their way to the examination room, Sarah and Leonid bump into Gar and Dick. At first, Leonid doesn't recognize Dick and his Nightwing duds, because the last time they saw one another, Dick was still Robin. When Dick reintroduces himself, Leonid is coldly polite, but clearly disinterested in renewing their friendship. He and Sarah continue on to the examination room. They're just about to begin the procedure, when a familiar pair of beefy, borscht-fed blondes Kool-Aid man their way through the wall and shout that the examination must not continue. Hi, Hammer! Hi, Sickle! Leonid is like, Comrades, what gives? Hammer is like, Your orders have changed. You are now to return home with us at once, old friend. Old friend? Wait, didn't Hammer and Sickle say something earlier about having to kill one of their friends? Yup, they sure did. Well, shit. Sickle punches Sarah Charles in the tummy for no particular reason. When the Titans see that, they burst through the two-way mirror and attack the invading Slavic super-soldiers. Sickle is like, Now we have to kill them! This mission must be kept secret! Everybody fights everybody. Joey uses his creepy lemur eyes to jump into Sickle's body and puppet her around for a minute, but then Boris smacks her in the face with his hammer until Joe falls out of her. Ouch. The two sides are at a bit of a standstill, but then Red Star enters the fray on the side of his communist compatriots. The former Starfire biffs Dick on the back of the head, then attacks current Starfire. The two engage in an epic battle. Current Starfire appears to have a slight advantage, but then Hammer sneaks up on her and smacks her in the head with his hammer, knocking her out. Damn it, Boris! I guess in Soviet Russia, Hammer nails you! Sorry. Red Star helps his countrymen tie up an unconscious Coriander and take her as a hostage. He tells the Titans that she will be released unharmed as soon as he, Boris, and Natasha leave the country. Dick is like, what the fuck, Leonid? Leonid is like, I follow orders. I was ordered to come here and submit myself to these procedures, which apparently include having creepy teenagers and young adults watch my nude body get poked and prodded. So I went along with that. Now I am being ordered to not do that, which in some ways is a bit of a relief. I do not wish to fight you, but I am loyal citizen of the Soviet Union. Dick is like, well, that sucks. Fine, get out of here, but you better not hurt Starfire. Donna isn't crazy about Dick's decision to let the Russians go, but she decides not to force the issue. As they load their hostage into a nearby van, Hammer whispers to Sickle, So, just to make sure we are on the same page, we are definitely going to murder both the American hostage and our friend Leonid as soon as we possibly can, right? Sickle is like, 
Oh, absolutely. After all, Leobit's orders did not change. We are just secretly working for an offshoot hardline faction that is planning a coup because we are opposed to Gorbachev's plan to have peaceful relations with the West. Hammer is like, good point. Leonid is like, what are you whispering about, comrades? Hammer is like, oh, we were just saying how following orders and being loyal to the current Soviet regime is the best. Leonid is like, yes, I agree with that sentiment. The three Soviets are so engrossed in this nuanced and naturalistic conversation that none of them notice that Cyborg, who has finally finished sulking for the day, saw them stuffing his trussed-up teammate into the back of a van and has jumped onto the rear of the vehicle, clinging to it like a suction cup Garfield toy. Implausibly unaware of their 400-pound, mostly molybdenum stowaway, Hammer, Sickle, and Red Star drive off. To be continued. You know, the more I see of medical practices in the DCU, the more I get the impression that the entirety of the Hippocratic Oath there is just, eh, whatever. Let's just have some fun. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? It's going great. I am back in the comic book room, and uh, it's good to see your face. It's good to be back here. Yeah, things are good. Glad to hear it. You're in the second week of your new job now. How's that going? It's a lot of new stuff. Mm. I'll leave it at that. As for a bigger tech company, I won't say what they're called, what percentage of the employees there do you think are wildebeest? Oh, jeez. Yeah. Could be anyone. I know. I feel like... If you look around a room and you don't know who the wildebeest is, you're the wildebeest. Good thing I'm not in any rooms. Mm. It's all virtual these days. Good point. So there could be a lot of virtual... I don't know what the plural is for wildebeest. I think it's just wildebeest. It seems like that should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wait, I don't know if I like that statement. So if I don't know who the other wildebeests are, that means I have to be that asshole? I'm just saying, percentage-wise, I think that's how that works out. That's not how percentages work. I think it is. We've been over this. We're not great at math. One of us, I'm not going to point any fingers, but I know one of us couldn't make it through Donald Duck's adventures in Math Magic Okay, yeah, I am historically (laughs) bad, heroically bad at arithmetic. But the only way that that percentage thing works is if we know with a degree of certainty that there is at least one wildebeest in the entire body of employees. For I mean, I think statistically, you pretty much have to assume that, right? Oh, gosh. He's a lot of people, Corey. He's one person pretending to be a lot of people, Hub. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> okay. I mean, look, I, I work from home, uh-huh. and so it's just me and Lisa and Finley. And I'm like 80% sure none of us is wildebeest, mm-hmm. but I don't swear to it, man. He's pretty bad at his fake identities it's the enabling i think of his his peers that allow him to to do his wildebeest stuff okay and yeah he does have a tendency to go a little bit over the top with his characters Mm -hmm. so if suddenly lisa or finley start speaking with like a thick italian accent for no reason yeah then i should start getting suspicious yeah or changing your name to peace foster or what's the guy's name yeah it was peace foster you got it in one oh dang a little bit suspicious hey peace out oh well Corey, if that is who you in fact are you want to talk about a comic book let's do it 
Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I liked the change of scenery. They were in a different city. It's a different city that they've been to a couple of times in the last few issues. Mm-hmm. It's odd. I think Marv Wolfman had moved to San Francisco at this point. But it still is odd that it was like two issues ago they were in San Francisco and now they're in San Francisco again. Yeah, I did, speaking of Wolfman, enjoy the Wolfman cameo. Mm-hmm. Um, who's the other guy? Is that supposed to be George Perez? I believe that is supposed to be Julius Schwartz, oh, who was the longtime editor at DC. Julius Schwartz was a bit of a, uh, a monster in a lot of ways, which is unfortunate, but uh, it was a cute cameo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cyborg and Beast Boy are fighting, and one of them says, Ah, it's a guy in armor punching a green lion. And the other guy says, eh, you're in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was honestly a little bit shocked that there was some intentional humor that worked as well as it did in that scene. Like, that was a genuinely funny line. And there were a couple of them in this. Mm-hmm. I actually really enjoyed this comic book. I don't think it was necessarily a good comic book, but I still liked it. Like, virulently jingoistic. Like, super rah-rah America, and more specifically, boo Russia. Well, except Gorby. Except Gorbachev, yes. So that was my notes, too. I was just like, holy ham-fisted red scare tactics. This is so over-the-top and so terrible. And then at the end, they kind of walk it back with, like, well, uh, Hammer and Sickle are only really this terrible because they don't like Glasnost. Yeah, they're part of an offshoot of hardline separatists within the Russian government. But it is still very Rocky Four, Like... Very Red Dawn. Yeah, John Milius, you could see him writing these characters. Specifically Rocky Four, because I believe Sickle bore a striking resemblance to Brigitte Nielsen in Rocky IV. Mm-hmm. And that movie would have come out pretty soon before her debut in comic books. Hammer and Sickle were part of a group of Soviet superheroes who were evil bad guys because they were Soviets, called the People's Heroes, who showed up in 1986 for the first time in an Outsiders comic. They were Russian thugs who had been subcontracted by an African strongman dictator to steal money from Band-Aid, basically, that was supposed to be for famine relief and siphon it to the Soviets to consolidate his power. It got a little bit confusing, but basically they were part of a group of Russian communist bad guys. They actually have the only English code names of any of the people on their team. Their other members were Molotov. Mm. Guess what he did? He throws things that blow up. Yep. Pravda, who could mind control people. Mm. It's the Russian word for truth. Oh. Uh, so, a little bit of Orwellian shit there, I think. Mm. And Bolshoi. He was a dancer? Yes, but that's weird because Bolshoi in Russian just means big. Like, it's the Bolshoi Ballet because it's the big ballet. Oh, really? Yeah, there's also the Malankai Ballet, which is the small ballet. Oh. So it is kind of funny that he just chose a code name that means big because he's good at ballet. I... Guess the person didn't know that who wrote it. That would be my guess didn't, as well. Didn't check the Russian dictionary. Probably not. But it is weird that the most hardline members of the group chose English code names for themselves, Hammer and Sickle. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were kind of fun 
horrible jingoistic bad guys in this, I gotta say. Way bloodier than I was expecting. Like, the opening sequence when Sickle throws her sickle and it comes back having chopped a dude's head off and is covered in blood. I was like, oh shit! And then, even more so the next page, when you get this noise that I think is like crunch and like the sound effect letters are dripping in blood and then you see this little sledgehammer that he carries around coated in blood from having smashed somebody's head it's like okay so they're the bad guys yeah that was i think the most jarring violence that i've seen in this series to date yeah it was like the gore equivalent, I think, of when we saw the little baby that it looked like Son of Satan was going to have to sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting putting this comic in conversation with the Defenders comic that we just covered, where that was like five or six years before this one came out. I think six years before this came out. And this comic is so much more conservative and it's odd. You would expect it almost to go the opposite direction. But in that one, it's the U.S. government that there are hardline factions at mm-hmm. play behind the scenes that are trying to trigger World War III and want to maintain the Cold War. And in this, it really is just all Russians being super Russian bad guys. Mm-hmm. And if they're not bad guys, it's because they're not as Russian as the Russian bad guys. Yeah. I couldn't really remember so well the background with Red Star. I remember meeting him and not thinking he was such a caricature of soviet badness but he he really turns the corner and becomes that a little bit he doesn't as much he's certainly less reactionary than his comrades there is a weird so we've i think really just seen him the twice in their first adventure back in like i think the late 60s it is weird to think he was created by marv wolfman back when he was named starfire Mm -hmm. because marv wolfman just has names that he likes to use Mm -hmm. because he remember he tried to introduce a hero named Jericho at that point too and I hadn't realized this but when he was writing Dial H for Hero he introduced a villain that was a different villain named Wildebeest he just likes to use the same names again Mm -hmm. but back in that one there was like a drug robbery in Stockholm and the Titans teamed up with Starfire as he was known then and they didn't trust each other but they learned to work together and then in his last appearance Kid Flash was a total douchebag to him, and I think Beast Boy was too. And he was in America on a special mission where he had to kill a lady who was a super spreader for a disease, and she was his fiance too. I don't think I read that, but I did. I'm pretty sure you did. Gosh, I feel like I'd remember that. That's a pretty dramatic situation. You'd think. And yet, (laughs) it was a while ago. It was issue 18 of the first New Teen Titans series. This is Editor Hub here in the future, and Corey's actually right. He hasn't read that issue. We had a guest co-host that issue because Corey was off babysitting Aqua Baby in Atlantis, and I was joined by the delightful Elizabeth Alley for that one. So, yeah, turns out Corey was right, but uh, don't tell him. I'd have to give him some Macquarie points, so let's just keep this between us. Okay, back to the show. But basically, the Titans have met him twice, and have fought him before grudgingly realizing he was on the right side, twice. And they constantly describe him as their friend. Mm -hmm. That's not how friends work. 
Yeah, that was a, a weird one because, so I guess, yeah, I had forgotten all that. And I was just like, these guys are friends. Then why are they fighting so much? He's being so mean. Part of his character is he was always kind of a caricature of the prototypical Russian personality where he is cold and standoffish and stuck in his ways and also very much believes in communism. But I feel like there's almost this thing where earlier on in the Cold War, there was this like, well, you know what? We need to learn to get along with the Russians because communism is going to be around forever and so is capitalism. And so we need to find some common ground where we can work together towards things. And at this point, it's very much towards the end of the Cold War. Gorbachev had already started to try to reconcile with the West. And there's almost this switch where now it's just like, no, fuck communism. It's fucking terrible. America, USA, USA. We're actually going to win this. We should crush them and stamp them out. Well, yeah, I mean, otherwise the Salvadorans are going to invade Montana. Exactly. Domino effect, man. Exactly. I told you about my fourth grade teacher who used to tell us that if Nicaragua went communist, then they were going to sneak up across the border in the middle of the night and start killing us. And we lived in New Hampshire, so just geographically that didn't work out. And also, like, I feel like it's been a while since you could invade a country just by doing it at night. Yeah, I think your teacher was a dumb person. He was an old person. The year after I left, he got fired for throwing a desk at a kid. Wow, old but strong. Yeah! The villains are so mustache-twirlingly evil in this. There's the fact that, and this isn't Marv Wolfman, the characters had been introduced at this point, I think they already had first names, but that they are literally named Boris and Natasha. Oh, man. Yeah. Did you not catch that? Because he calls her Tasha. Uh So it's like, oof. Need a moose and a squirrel? That is, I feel like, a missed opportunity that Beast Boy never turned into a moose or a squirrel to fight them. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's coming in the next issue. Honestly, fingers crossed. That would be a little too demonstrative of an understanding of the way that jokes work or humor works. I would have agreed with you last month reading this comic book, but honestly, there are some pretty good jokes in here. I just mean from Beast Boy. He's just historically so bad. Yes, you're humor. right. I was thinking the comic book. No, no, like, the, there's the some good jokes fine. in the comic yeah. book. Uh, you're right, Beast Boy still doesn't have any of them, although there are some that are at his expense. Mm-hmm. When he tries to buy the gelato, I came very close to laughing out loud at that when he says to the vendor, Five bucks for two scoops of gelato. What are you, crazy? And the gelato salesman says, no, just greedy. Now pay up or starve. (laughs) So funny. Yeah, Beast Boy kind of gets, in a way, what's coming to him. We'll talk about it. I'm not really pleased with Cyborg's behavior, but he's had that beating coming for a while. Yeah. Although, I mean, Gar had that beating coming. That guy who happened to be riding by on a motorcycle didn't. Like, there's a pretty good chance that guy's dead now, and the cyborg didn't even go check on him. He picked up a fucking chimpanzee and threw it at a motorcycle. Yeah, and then also the fruit vendor got his display smashed, and Gar gave him, like, a Titan's business card. <laughs> Just said, build these assholes. <laughs> and then he said, like, give the rest of the ruined food to the homeless. And I was like, I don't think you... No, give them some good food. Like, 
You can't just give homeless people squashed rotten fruit that has green monkey fur all over it. I don't know. Maybe the fear of litigation for people getting sick was less in the 80s. Maybe. But I think specifically that he was a green monkey at the time that he got hit with it. We saw in the last issue that the green monkey is in fact prone to be infected with a very highly communicable deadly disease. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the Titans have one of uh, Gar's parents' science lasers to shoot that motorcycle mohawk guy with. Oh, man. Yeah. You think he could have the green fever? It's a possibility. And I mean, if like homeless kids end up eating that green monkey hair, San Francisco's got a pandemic on their hands. Bad job, Gar. <laughs> yeah. For suggesting that. I think his heart was in the right place, sort of. But if you got a company business card, don't be like, hey, feed the homeless my trash. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I don't like throwing away food either, but if a magic monkey squashes some food, that is not fit for consumption anymore. I also really hate throwing food away, but I got to agree with you. <laughs> you got to draw the line somewhere. That's my line in the sand. Green magic monkey. <laughs> No thanks. Pretty much everything else, I'll just cut some mold off it. Yeah. Some hot sauce. Yeah. It's not that bad. No, no, just you toast it a little extra longer. Mm -hmm. What did you think of Eric Forrester? The listeners can't hear me shaking my head, and I'm surprised, because I'm really shaking my head. Maybe they can. The mic is pretty sensitive. It might be picking up some wind currents, because you are shaking your head furiously with a great deal of disappointment. I did not like this character. But Corey, he has a huge crank. <laughs> that I... doesn't win you over? Ah, it's <laughs> like, he's, he's written so offensively, horribly, awfully over-the-top sexist and gross. And then at the end, when there's like an opportunity to make him the butt of a joke, Dr. Sarah Charles is like, well... He can actually back that stuff up. <laughs> no, no, I was like, like no. Yeah, he's actually really good at fucking. Yeah. Like, from what I hear, I've talked to a lot of ladies. Half the women that work here. Half of them. And they all say, no, he is great at fucking. Which, I will tell you, is honestly surprising. Because it seems like, at the very least, his brand of sex would be an acquired taste. Because he states that he considers having invasive medical procedures performed on him like good sex. So that's not just sexy for him. That's what good sex constitutes. So you would think, if nothing else, his particular brand of lovemaking would be an acquired taste, but it is difficult to argue with those numbers. 50% of the female employees of Star Labs rate this asshole 10 out of 10. <laughs> Yeah, they never clarify which uh, orifice has electrical wires in it. No, I mean, one would assume it, it's his butthole, right? Yeah, I don't see why they would put them in your urethra. I don't either, but maybe they did. We really, we don't know what Eric <laughs> maybe is Maybe Sarah Charles was actually really sick of this <laughs> shit. It's like, oh, this is part of the procedure. You're going to feel a pinch. Yeah, so, okay, as Red Star is going in to get... Similar experiments done on him. Forrester, between puffs on his cigarette. Maybe not between puffs. He does just have it hanging out of his mouth like the keyboard player from Huey Lewis and the News. Mm -hmm. Although Eric Forrester's cigarette is lit. But he says, You'll love them, Red. When they turn on the juice, it's like good sex. And previously, 
when we first met him and saw him being experimented on. Dr. Sarah Charles says, all right, Eric, we're finished for today. And he goes, so soon? I was just used to having wires up my... Hmm. <laughs> and then he lights a cigarette in a fucking high-tech medical facility. Yeah, this guy. He is this the fucking worst. guy. He is the worst. I also was bothered by... The, I don't know. I really felt like the whole creative team on this one was like, let's make, like, the ideal 80s stud. Yes. This guy is like, he's like a dark-haired Fabio. He's got a Don Johnson jacket. Mm -hmm. Sweet mullet. More like Don Johnson. <laughs> Am I right? Because uh, they really do say, although as impossible as it may seem, he does seem to have a bigger ego than his. And then everybody interrupts Donna when she's saying that. But like, it comes up a couple of times that specifically they have been watching him nude getting medical experiments performed on him and nobody can shut up about this guy's fucking crank gar is so uncomfortable like that's the only good thing about this is how freaked out and jealous i guess gar and was kind of into it like he still doesn't want to leave he definitely wants to hang out and watch this guy nude which what the fuck is star lab's deal do they not have hippo laws in the dc universe like they are doing medical tests on these guys, and they bring in a bunch of teenagers, or barely not teenagers anymore, who by and large do not have a background in medicine or science, to just come watch the experiments with no context for them through a one-way mirror. Just like, oh, we're doing some experiments on this naked guy. He's got a pretty big dick. Let's invite some teens to watch. <laughs> what the fuck, Star Labs? Yeah, when you put it like that, it sounds pretty weird. And yeah, Gar is like, oh man, I bet the women love this guy, both before and after. It's like, I don't know what you're getting at. Yeah, I had, I had a question note about that too. I guess he's talking about sex? It like, would seem like. Like, before he has sex with them, they're happy and they probably don't ask him to leave afterwards. Yeah. Like, what, what is Gar's understanding of how these kinds of relationships work? I don't know, but I bet it's pretty close to his take on humor. Yeah, I think you're probably right. There is so much about this Eric Forrester guy and the way he is handled. And that medical examination goes on for like a full half of the issue. And then once he gets out, he immediately creepily hits on all three of the female Titans. Starfire says that no, because she doesn't have a tetanus shot, which was confusing to me. Does he have a big, rusty metal dick? Like, I think that was just her Tamaranian way of saying he was gross. Yeah, but that is specifically a shot you would need if he was rusty and metal. There's probably other diseases or things that that could protect you from. Really? I don't know. Well, I should get another tetanus shot. Well, yeah, every uh, ten years you're supposed to get one. Yeah, I should probably get one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, otherwise... Otherwise, no, no sense no, with Forrester no, for me. No, no Forrester for you. He might cut me with his rusty metal huge crank. Your loss. <laughs> uh, oh. I hated this guy. Yeah, no, he, he was a real fucking scumbag, and you're right. He did seem like they were trying to build the ultimate 80s douche. But, like, in a way that you felt like the guys, because it was probably guys creating this character, or, like... I kind of wish I had this swagger. Yeah, like, oh, you'll love to hate this guy. 
And there there were scenes when they're watching the medical examination. It is a one-way mirror, and apparently they can hear through it, too. But they can hear what a douchebag he's being. And Starfire is still just fanning herself at the very thought of this dude. And Raven gets very flustered and makes an excuse, but seems like she's kind of into the idea of dating this dude. I don't know. I thought she was just skeezed out and didn't know how to deal with it. Maybe. She got very flustered, Mm -hmm. at the very least, which I think is fair. I would not know how to react to that onslaught of Eric Forrester. No, no. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I can't. So gross. But yeah, I could totally see him being like the bad guy in a ski academy movie or something like that, that all the girls like. He's got that kind of a character, but it is also the 80s. So every once in a while, I'll watch like a teen comedy from that era or something like that, like an adventure comedy. And I will be struck by how explicitly unlikable and awful the male lead who I'm supposed to like is. And I could see them having a touch of Eric Forrester in them. I watched Major League the other day. Mm. The main guy in that movie seems like he's a bad guy, but he's kind of charming and you're supposed to root for him because mm-hmm. he's not a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So I think Eric Forrester might have that kind of vibe to him. <sighs> Boo. Boo the 80s indeed. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of sliding scale age shit that goes on with Teen Titans comics in general. It's been a while since I've been as struck by it, though, as I was with Red Star in this issue. Because he says his dad was an archaeologist, and he was helping him explore a meteor from 1908. There is so much that doesn't fit about that sentence. So, like, were there rumors of there having been a meteor in 1908? Oh, I just figured part of his power was, like, some kind of a frozen in time immortality thing. Okay, that could be the case. I don't know that we were necessarily supposed to get that from it. And also, why would an archaeologist be examining a meteor? So, you know how there's, like, these things on social media where... It's like a a picture and parts of it are missing, but you don't know until you read the thing that tells you that because your brain fills in the detail for Mm -hmm. you. I have this approach to reading a lot of these comics, and I think that's what happened in this instance where I was like, okay, yeah, meteor, archaeologist. Sure. Really all checks out. (laughs) Fair enough. What what story did your brain fill in for that? Oh, just, you know, helping his dad check something out. Turned out it was a spaceship, got zapped. Okay, so probably he is 80 years old at this point, minimum. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, but his biological age is still, like, you know, 20. Okay. Well, his powers change over time. So he was maybe, like, just before this issue, super old. Oh. And then got young again. See, the story my mind filled in was that, A, it was a meteor that they had heard about that had landed at this time, and so he helped his dad excavate it in, like, the early 80s, maybe? But it was like a 70-year-old meteor at that point. Like, maybe they read a report about it. I still couldn't quite figure out why an archaeologist would have been looking at that. Unless maybe he wanted to see how the meteor had affected various cultures in the area. Although 1908 seems pretty recent for an archaeological expedition, right? Yeah. Are they just thinking anybody who digs something up is an archaeologist? It could be. It seems like geology would make a lot more sense. 
or a meteorologist. Oh, just a weather forecaster? <laughs> well, no, because it's a meteor. Yeah, good point. Yeah, so he was an ologist. Okay. That's the important thing. Agreed. Well, shit. It's a pretty straightforward issue. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into the minutiae? No, I think it'll come up in the minutiae. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in to the minutiae? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what was your favorite panel? Gosh, I had a backup and I had a definite favorite. Okay. And the definite favorite is on page 22, and it's the full page fight with uh, Red Star and Starfire because it's fucking awesome. It is really well done. The art in this issue is gorgeous, and there's something different about it. It's a creative team we've seen a ton of. It's what I would probably call the regular creative team at this point. Mm -hmm. It's Eduardo Barreto with Romeo Tingal inks. But there are some pages where it just seems like he's branching out a little bit, especially with some of the expressions. It just, it's gorgeous. The art really, really pops in this issue, enough so that I went back and checked the credits a couple of times to try to figure out what was different. And it's a creative team we've seen a ton of before, but they just are really clicking in this one. I agree, that panel is fucking gorgeous. This big, awesome fight scene between the two Starfires. Or two of the Starfires, because there was another Starfire in the middle there. Mm. It was a uh, space barbarian lady who led a revolt. Oh. Wow, she would have gotten along well with uh, Starfire You'd from Tamarin, probably. Yeah, probably. I think she's from the future, though. Mm. Honestly, kind of a uh, Killraven knockoff, but that panel is really, really great. I had that on my short list, but I don't think it was my favorite. The panel that I think cracked me up the most, which is one of my favorites, is the panel that we talked about a little bit before, where Eric fucking Forrester is hitting on Raven, and... All of the other Titans in the background are trying to sign various excuses at her. Like, no, 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 say you have to go. And Donna's like, just kind of wagging her fingers back and forth to say, no, 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 don't do it. <laughs> Danny Chase looks like he's maybe miming, grabbing her breasts, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He's probably telling her, no, stop, back away from him. Mm-hmm. And Jericho is just holding his head in his hand, possibly out of just embarrassment for what Eric Forrester has said, but possibly at how bad the rest of his teammates are at trying to do sign language. Yeah, they packed a lot into a tiny panel. They did, and it was pretty cool. And Raven is saying, I, uh, um, I think I have an appointment. Yes, I have to work. Work. Yes, definitely work. Mm -hmm. I like that panel a lot. I think my favorite panel, though, is one that I call sad cyborg stands in front of an 80s van i had that one called postcard borgie (laughs) yeah that is that was my backup it is a gorgeous panel it is cyborg standing in front of a sunset but it is a very stylized sunset that has like the sun is bright red and has those little lines going through it it really does look like it might be painted on the side of an 80s van and there are seagulls flying in front of it and Cyborg just looks pensive. It is such a cool picture. Yep, I love that. 
What do you feel like hitting up next? You want to talk about uh, time stampage? I think we probably should get started because there is a lot of it. This is such a overtly and subtly in many ways 1988 issue. Like, just everything about this book screams 1988. The politics of it, the specific references to having a character look like one of the villains from Rocky IV and act like one of the villains from Rocky IV. But there are also a ton of specific timestamps within it. What were some of the ones that you found? Well, I'll start with another kind of abstract one, which is that, so we're at Star Labs in San Francisco, arguably the most high-tech place in the U.S., Mm -hmm. except maybe their New York office. And it takes 30 minutes to run a body scan on somebody. I think they were maybe milking that for the Titans' benefit. The more nude forester, the better. Yeah, I think that was really what they were going for there. Hmm. I think the fact that he is smoking in that high-tech facility is at least kind of a timestamp. Speaking of smoking, there was an ad on the side of a trolley that they went by that said, Winston loves San Francisco as much as you do. So having a Winston cigarettes ad, I don't remember that being an ad campaign, but it seemed like such a specific ad. It would not surprise me if that was one that they ran in San Francisco at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. There is a in-comic universe timestamp where Beast Boy is chastising Vic for doing his self-pity thing again, where he's like, who would possibly want to date me? I have some metal parts. Mm -hmm. And he says, hey, you don't see me whining about being green, which he does all the time. But he says, uh, even the Hulk's not green anymore. They went and made him gray again. So this is during the Gray Hulk era of... The Incredible Hulk in the 80s when he was Joe Fixit. I thought that was kind of fun to have that kind of intramural reference going on there. Yeah, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole learning about Joe Fixit after reading that. Those are some pretty fun issues. I kind of want to reread them. Yeah. There was one where he fought Hulk Hogan. Oh, really? Yeah, because he didn't like Hulk Hogan using the name Hulk. (laughs) It was cute. Yeah. He apparently could drive a car. Yeah. He wore uh, bespoke suits. Yeah, that's, uh, that's I like this brainy Hulk idea. Yeah, I mean, he was brainy, but he was also way more of a jerk. Oh. Well. Had kind of an Eric Forrester vibe to him. Oh, you ruined it. I'm sorry. It's okay. For other timestamps, we have, I believe it is Beast Boy. Who is it? Is it Vic or is it Beast Boy saying that Eric Forrester makes Tom Selleck look like Pee Wee Herman? I had that written down, too. I think it was Beast Boy. I don't know exactly what that means as a metaphor, but fair enough. Oh, I think it's pretty straightforward. So... It makes a cool guy look like a nerd. Yeah. Okay. But not only a cool guy, but Finley, Finley also don't diss Tom Selleck. No, I wouldn't. Few people could rock a mustache like that. I've tried, man. It's a tall order. Yeah. But no, you take this epitome of masculinity, right, and say next to Forrester, this guy's Pee Wee Herman. Ouch. Yeah. You have the references to Gorbachev and him trying to bring forth an era of Glasnost. Yep. Pretty specific timestamp going on right there. Yep. There was just a lot about this that was very 80s, both thematically and specifically. Yeah, definitely. The whole pensive cyborg scene of which our favorite panel, one of our favorite panels was part of. Like, it was a little bit 70s, but it also felt very decidedly 80s with these almost like day glow sunset colors going on in the background. 
Mm -hmm. You could almost hear Baker Street playing in the background. Oh, nice. Corey, every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans, except for maybe Danny Chase. <laughs> In this issue, who did you have as your Aqualad, and who did you have as your Beast Boy? Get the bad news out of the way first. Okay. It always pains me when I have to do this, but I have to go with Cyborg because you don't throw monkeys around San Francisco <laughs> willy-nilly, knocking fruit stands over. No matter how mad you get or how annoying your stupid friend is, mm -hmm. you're super strong. Don't punch him that hard. Yeah. And uh, all that is a way of avoiding processing feelings about somebody that cares about you when a friend that cares about you is trying to help. Yes, I completely agree. I went back and forth with both Cyborg and Beast Boy for both both categories of this. Ultimately, I didn't award either of them the nod in either category, but they both did things that were really good and things that were really bad, and I feel like those kind of canceled each other out. Yes, Cyborg did all of that shit, which annoyed the shit out of me, but then at the end, he was the one who ends up hanging on to the ambulance and tailing Starfire. Beast Boy, on the other hand, for the most part, had a really strong showing, and he was in contention, and then... He's like, oh, so what? They got women's lib in Russia now? Ugh. Gross. The idea of women as people. Ugh, take that back to Russia with you. you know, the only silver lining to that panel was it's pretty easy to misread. Because right after that, then he says, like, okay, lady, I'll kick your ass like you're a guy. And Raven's like, that's not necessary. But I like to read Raven saying that it's not necessary and shutting him up when he's making the stupid women's lib joke. Ah, that could be the case. It's not, but it brought me some peace. Fair, but that doesn't make it any better for Beast Boy to have said it. No, he's a shit. Yeah, he is a shit. But he was also really showing some growth and maturity up until that point. I mean, it is difficult. Like, he wants what's best for his friend, even though that's not what is best for him. I was impressed by that. And I liked the talk that he had with Dick. Mm -hmm. Like, I thought that was nice. And I was like, oh, okay, he's doing okay. And then, no, no, he's not. And with Cyborg, it was like, ah, oh, he's being a real shit. And then at the end, he redeems himself a little bit. So I didn't give it to either of them. I ultimately decided that the beast boy in this issue was Jericho. Because both him and Raven, no sign language. That's come up before. And he was the only one not trying to give her an excuse in actual sign language, which he could have done easily. I get he was probably overwhelmed by what a bad job the rest of the gang was doing, but uh, he could have he tried. And I know we've discussed at nauseum how gross and creepy his powers are, but if ever an opportunity presents itself to control the body of somebody who's being such a complete jerk, that was one. He could have he could have made Forrester do he, some silly yeah. things. Yeah. Uh, he totally could have made him just punch himself in his face, probably with that big rusty dick of his. Uh-huh. Just, yeah. I hope I've had my tetanus shot. Whack! <laughs> Whack! <laughs> oh no! What am I doing? Uh, I can't control my body. Yeah, that would have been pretty funny. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Bad job, Jericho. Missed opportunity. Maybe next time. You know, there's always next issue. Yeah, yeah. Conversely, for my Aqualad, I had Danny fucking Chase. Unusual. Very. 
he was the only Titan who did not like the idea of them hanging out in that room and watching the naked guy getting medical procedures done on him. He's the only one who was like, we probably shouldn't be doing this. And everyone else was like, shut up, Danny. Look We're going to watch this naked guy and his big old crank get some tests done on them. Yeah, no, Danny's uh, position was, was pretty reasonable in this, yeah. uh, this one. And he was the only Titan taking that position. Everyone else was really into the idea of hanging out there and watching. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he was my Aqualad. For my Aqualad, I had 1D. She saved Dick's life. Yes, she did. So that was good. Mm-hmm. And I also thought that she did, I don't know strategically if it was the right move, but at the end when bad guys are like, we're taking Starfire and and Dick's like, hey, everybody stop fighting. We'll figure this out later. She kind of grits her teeth and is like, "Mm, okay. And then after she lets him have it, like, why the fuck do you do that? I didn't want to yell at you in front of our enemies. But I thought that took an enormous effort to kind of maintain a unified front in a highly stressful, volatile situation. I think that is a good point. Whether or not it was a good call, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. Time will tell. I gotta say, this is the first issue in a while, and I've been burned by this so many times before. It seems like something's happening. And it was nice to see something happening, you know? Mm -hmm. So, guardedly optimistic. Although, man, do I hate that Eric Forrester. I don't want to see his character show up again. He will at least a couple times. Ooh. But not that much. Okay. He never gets a code name, so that's a that's good, a good sign. Because yep. I was worried it would just be like, is this guy going to join the Justice League or some shit? Mm-hmm. I don't fucking know. But he has a... Sergeant Crank. <laughs> I think he'd have to be Captain Crank. We've talked about this before. <laughs> that's right, that's right. He just has to go buy a boat. Yeah. He's not going to put the time in in the military. Oh, no, no. Plus, then you get the alliteration. Mm-hmm. Captain Crank. Yeah. Let's have us a battle of the band names. What band names were you able to find in the text of this issue? Both of my entries are not surprisingly Cold War slash Red Scare type references. Mm. But I think make okay band names and weren't actual band names. Cool. Hit me with your first one. The first one, and probably not the best one, is Boris Boris! So that's Boris with one exclamation point, space Boris with two. Oh, so like a Tony, Tony, Tony situation, but with only two Tonys and they're both Borises? Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think we all know what that would sound like. Yeah. Yeah. It would sound smooth. Oh, hell yeah. Two Borises, no waiting. That's the name of their first album. I like it. I think that's pretty good. I had a possible, I think a dance punk band called the squirming rats oh that is of course an insult that hammer says to somebody who he has just hit in the face with a hammer and they are in the process of dying he is such a jerk he really is a jerk yeah but the squirming rats i think sounds like a plausible punk band sure Mm -hmm. yeah what was your other band name my other one was the people's heroes Ooh. And, uh, yeah, I think they are kind of embracing some of the, you know, popular communist Lenin-era iconography that you see showing up in graphic design and stuff a lot. And um, probably sound like, have you heard uh, Devochka? 
Sounds familiar. Yeah. I think I might just vaguely remember that word from taking Russian. Yeah. So it's like um, Russian and other, I think, Eastern European influenced music. <laughs> but, um, you know, kind of more like modern, not like folky. Okay. That's interesting. So yeah. it's kind of like one, like, or uh, what's that other? Google Bordello, like one of those okay. bands that like has some cultural ties to that part of the world. Okay. You ever listen to Ujimya Doma? I don't know. They're a Czech band that is, I think they're considered prog rock. And it was very confusing to me because that was the first I'd heard of prog rock was describing them. And I think they are from Prague. So I thought that was what prog rock was, was bands (laughs) from Prague. Well, sure. You got your kraut rock. You got your prog rock. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But Ushimiya Doma is great. That's a cool sounding name. Mm -hmm. It means the something house. Ah. I don't remember what the something is, but I remember the word Doma means uh, house. Jaguar. Probably Jaguar house. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a cool name. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of band names that are influenced by animals, uh, this is kind of high concept, but Dick Raven. (laughs) (laughs) How is that high concept? Well, because the idea behind Dick Raven is that they write songs (laughs) that are inspired by episodes of Law and Order. What? Because uh, the show was created by Dick, Dick Wolf, Wolf, of course, and wolves and ravens sometimes hunt together, and so like the raven will scavenge after the wolf and will scout ahead for the wolf, so they work together. Mm-hmm. So uh, Dick Raven <laughs> writes cool, kind of stripped down metal songs that are inspired by episodes of Law and Order. All I can hear is the. You know that. Yeah. That's how every every song okay. ends. At the end of every song, it's. All right, that's the winner. Okay, fine. Dick Raven. <laughs> Dick Raven. I don't like the high concept stuff, but it's a funny name. Thank you. Dick Raven. <laughs> that guy's a real Dick Raven. I don't. I don't know what it means either. But any kind of context you say it in, like, let it go. It's a Dick Raven. <laughs> Nothing but Dick Ravens as far as the eye could see. Mm. Nice dick. Ah, you're just Dick Raven. (laughs) Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most noteworthy? Um, Don Johnson shitbag. Yeah. I mean, I think we agreed he's Don Johnson. Oh, sorry, my bad. Yep. But yeah, no, the the black t-shirt with the yellow blazer with a popped collar over it. The way I described him was Eric's mullet, Eric's earring, Eric's whole fucking deal. Mm-hmm. Even when he was nude, he had a very late 80s fashion in this. Yeah, unmistakable. Mm-hmm. I also had never been struck quite so strongly by Red Star's costume. I don't know that it was drawn this way before, but it seems like he is wearing a bodysuit, and then he has just affixed a Chippendale-style collar to it in some way. But like a very large popped polo shirt collar. Right, but it is clearly not attached to anything else, and is strapped on just apropos of nothing. It looks really dumb. It does. He also has very silly large safety goggles. Well, safety first. Oh, I, I agree. 
you're gonna swim in the river, you gotta wear your goggles. Yes, as the <laughs> drunk man sitting behind us at a Blazers game famously said one time. It has come up at least twice on this show before. <laughs> I know, but I think I may have edited it out those times. <laughs> I won't this time. It's, it's gonna cost you some Corey points. I got them to spend. Do you? I don't know. We'll see. I had one more, which was... I don't know if I've noticed this before, but it must be a common hero or bad guy costume thing, but Hammer and Sickle's kind of tracksuit, but also form-fitting, like yoga pant tracksuit. Yeah. Get Up was pretty cool looking because it had a really nice medium dark brown with red trim kind of soviet color scheme and i just thought it looked cool it does look cool i think we're not supposed to think it looks cool maybe but you know there has been recently that you were talking about that uh re-embracing of some of the soviet design elements Mm -hmm. and uh i do think it looks kind of cool i really like the lines specifically of sickle's outfit and I like that she's the one that gets the cape and Hammer doesn't. I think Hammer would look silly with a cape, but it works for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really unlikable people. But oh, yeah, no, they're they're terrible close. murder monsters. Yeah, real couple of dick ravens. <laughs> yeah, man. I don't know, maybe not. Tough to, I, I still haven't figured out if dick raven is a bad thing or a good one. Oh, I, think I guess it could be either one. Context yeah, based. you're right. Context dependent, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they're a pair of dick ravens. Yeah. Caw-caw. <laughs> is that what a raven says? I did say crow, but maybe a raven does the same thing. Okay, is there a difference between a raven and a big crow? You just pushed it. Was that intentional that you just pushed your glasses up on your nose before you answered? Oh, I was about to get professorial. <laughs> Are you? Uh, no, I don't know the answer. Oh, okay. All right. I'm pretty sure there is. Oh, there must be. Probably. Otherwise, we've been completely dick-ravened mm. by the... Corvid industry. Are they both? Yeah, I guess they're both Corvids. Yeah. Do you think that their industry has suffered in the same way that, like, Delta Airlines in light of the Delta variant and, like, Corona did at first for the coronavirus? Do you think the Corvids suffered from COVID-related backlash? No, I think a lot of people, unless they're bird enthusiasts, don't know the... I don't know what part of the taxonomic classification that is, but they don't know that that's what they are. So you think that uh, ornithology enthusiasts are somehow exempt from the mass hysteria that has gripped the nation at times? I think there are so few of them relative to the larger population that it's statistically insignificant. Well, I wouldn't think it would be statistically insignificant to Corvids. I would think that uh, ornithologists would have a higher impact on birds than the rest of the general populace. I lost the thread, so is this meaning, like, the Corvid gift shops that the ravens somehow prosper from are not doing as well? I assume so. Okay. Well, you're the expert. That sounds like a real bummer for our feathered friends. Mmm. So sad. Mm Mm-hmm. Think of all those poor dick ravens. This is terrible. Now, Corey, would you consider Dong Johnson a dick raven? He is a level 10 dick raven. Ugh. That's the worst kind. Corey, I think this category may be as full of potential entrants as the timestamp 
category. But let's take this party to the Bozone. What instances of one character calling another character a Bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you want to talk about? Because dang, there's a lot of insults in this. Yeah, there was a nice volley between DFC and Beast Boy. Mm-hmm. We got a classic bot face. <laughs> one of my favorites. It was pretty good. That one, The context of that one was specifically pretty rough. Because Danny was saying, I, I don't get it. Why are we standing here watching some nude dude get zapped with lasers? We're in San Francisco. Why don't we ride a cable car or something? The first time I have wholeheartedly agreed with Danny fucking Chase about anything. And Beast Boy's response is, why don't you lie under one butt face? We are standing here and we are watching that naked guy. Did you see the size of his crank? Yeah, the mixing uh, like a death threat or a wish for somebody's death with butt face kind mm -hmm. of makes it a little less playful then specifically because he does not want to stand around and watch a naked guy get test done on him yeah so go die yeah butt face you stupid piece of shit look at that tongue <laughs> jesus fucking christ <laughs> i think one of my favorite insults was kind of a low-key one that danny fucking chase has as a rejoinder to beast boy where he just says stupid if you don't know you never will just calling him stupid as though that were his name. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, that was the other part of that volley I mentioned. Mm. We also have a nice, again, kind of low-key zinger that Vic delivers to Beast Boy, where Beast Boy says, I'm sorry, and Cyborg says, I knew that years ago. Yeah. Zing. Zing. Pretty good. In that same sort of conversation, there was a, a self-directed insult that you, you mentioned earlier but you didn't say what it was and it was where beast boy refers to himself as the illegitimate brother of kermit the frog mm -hmm. which i don't know that's a weird one right kermit's pretty cool and it doesn't really matter if your parents are married or not yeah these days. yeah i don't care if kermit's parents were married but if they were i don't like the idea of one of them stepping out with beast boy's mom <laughs> or dad that's fair on page six, there is an insult that Cyborg delivers to Beast Boy that I think was meant to be kind of an offhand thing that he just said. But I think within the DC universe, it probably has a different context. He dismissively calls Beast Boy Joker. I'm like, no, you live in a universe with the Joker. Ooh. That's like being like, yeah, whatever, John Wayne Gacy. Mm -hmm. Ouch. Yeah, not cool. Not cool at all. So I, I thought that was a pretty telling volley from Cyborg just about what he really thinks of Beast Boy. That he's a serial murderer? Yes. Oh. I, I think deep down he at least a little bit suspects that uh, Beast Boy might be a serial murderer. Uh, specifically a clown-themed one. I couldn't be friends with somebody that I had that suspicion about them. Corey, I mean, you need to be able to put your friend's politics aside. Oh. And I mean, it's it's not about that. It, there's more in this country that unites us than divides us. I mean, some of my friends are serial clown murderers, and some of them aren't. You just need to be able to put that aside and remember what uh, what's great about your friendship. Sure, maybe this guy has serially murdered a ton of children while dressed as a clown, but 
What about that one time he helped you move? What about that time he picked you up at the airport? Huh? It's a polarizing issue. <laughs> I'm just saying there's two sides to the serial clown murderer issue, Corey. And it doesn't help when you're so divisive. Well, this it. is a fair and balanced podcast. <laughs> I'm just saying both sides, Corey. Both sides. Uh-huh. Corey, who did you have as your president of the drama club? What character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion in this issue? Man, I had a pretty serious toss-up between that that level 10 Dick Raven Forrester. Mm-hmm. He's just so over-the-top gross. He is, and he is pretty clearly putting on a show about what a fucking douche lord he is. Mm-hmm. So, gosh, yeah, I'm torn between him and Cyborg for punching Gar and then sullenly walking around the pier by himself and then stopping and then gazing into his distorted reflection in the water with the sunset behind him and the birds yeah, while I, Baker Street was playing. I think I am giving the slight edge in this to Cyborg. It's just we've seen it before so many times from him and the fact that he will not let it go. Like, he has dealt with this problem with Sarah. She clearly is into him. She has made that abundantly clear. Last issue, she flew from San Francisco to New York to go see a Humphrey Bogart movie with him as part of a group date. That's a pretty clear sign that she's into him. Mm -hmm. He knows that, but he's not willing to let go the idea that, oh no, she isn't, because he just wants to fucking wander around the streets of San Francisco, smoking clove cigarettes, listening to Baker Street, and feeling sorry for himself. Yeah, I gotta say that puts it over the top. When you bring in the Baker Street and the cloves. Yeah. I mean, we don't see him smoking clove cigarettes in this, but it's pretty clear he is. Yeah. So, Cyborg's president of the drama club. All right. That's a unanimous. Well, Corey, I have just one more question I have to ask you. Wapoot, in the year of our Lord, 1990... You know, which is assigned fairly arbitrarily at this point. Mm -hmm. Not the publication date of this issue. We're a few months, years ahead. You should probably do something about that at some point, but I don't want to. In the month of our Lord January, what was Aqualad probably up to? Aqualad was helping an old friend make a tough choice. Ooh. So we got to back up to the mid-80s. You know, Aqualad was just absolutely bonkers fascinated with the Ewoks. Oh, sure. I mean, who wasn't? So he did some research and found out that the guy that invented their language, Ewokese, Benjamin Burt Jr., who also did a lot of uh, sound design and uh, voice acting. Hmm. He invented the sound of Darth Vader's breathing, the lightsaber noises, R2-D2's voice. Wow. So they had struck up a friendship over post, writing to each other, pen pals. and Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I thought you meant, like, post cereal. Oh, no. I guess they I went a little like, old-timey on get that, around, get, get around and, like, eat some grape nuts together. No, they sent, they sent telegrams to one another. Oh, singing telegrams? Sure. So they struck up a friendship, which is why several years later, Ben Burt called up Aqualad and was like, 
Aqualad, I, I got this great movie I'm making. It's about the planet Earth. There's underwater footage. There's animations. There's space shuttle footage. It's going to be on this thing called IMAX. It is going to be freaking off the wall. But I'm really having trouble with the name. I'm thinking maybe a 3D circle with lots of stuff on it, but that's like too long. Or multicolored sphere. Or, uh, I don't know, round planet? It's about the Earth. It's about planet Earth. Oh, okay. Well, Earth is round. So, yeah, shit. I don't know, man. What do you think? And Aqualad's like, you got ocean footage? And he's like, hell yeah, I got ocean footage. And that's why, in January of 1990, Ben Burt released the movie Blue Planet. Blue Planet. Gotcha. On the uh, epic IMAX big screen experience. And we have Aqualad to thank for that title. Good job, Aqualad. You know, oddly enough, that was not the only foray into the world of cinema that Aqualad had in January of 1990. See, he attended the Sundance Film Festival. And on January 27th, he was there when they showed the winner of the Sundance Film Festival, a film called Chameleon Street. Have you ever seen Chameleon Street? No. It's a great movie. The premise of the film is that there is a con man who lives in Detroit, whose last name is Street, and he ends up impersonating a bunch of different people, including a doctor, and he actually performed, it's based on a true story, he performed something like 30-some-odd hysterectomies, despite not having any medical training whatsoever. He studied a textbook before going in there. That's horrifying. Yes, it really is. But uh, it's a fascinating movie. Was written, directed, and starred a guy named Wendell B. Harris. But before the end of the movie, Aqualad was just like, oh shit, and bolted out of the theater. Mm. Because he had the brainstorm, I gotta warn the Titans, Wildebeest is probably out to get them. <laughs> he was just struck by the inspiration. I was like, oh fuck. Wildebeest was impersonating a doctor. He was impersonating this guy in the film, impersonates a lawyer successfully. He's very smart. He's a polymath and is able to do all of these things. That is the kind of guy they are up against. I better go see if they need help. And after he left the theater, he started to feel bad because the Titans already knew about Wildebeest. And when Aqualad leaves a film, it makes quite an impression on the audience. And so to Aqualad's thinking... It probably didn't do great things for Wendell B. Harris's career. And in fact, Chameleon Street, despite winning the grand jury prize at Sundance that year, didn't get picked up for distribution for almost a year and then got a very limited release. And so Aqualad's like, well, probably the bigwigs saw me leave the theater and they were like, well, if Aqualad is against this movie, I know the critics loved it. I loved the movie, but... uh." Uh, as goes Aqualad, so goes the nation. So I don't know if we should give this Wendell B. Harris guy much of a shake. And that's why Aqualad started working tirelessly and uh, really saw to it that in the DC universe, Wendell B. Harris is one of the most celebrated film directors going. In our universe, of course, uh, Aqualad was not there to advocate for Wendell B. Harris. And so he never got the chance to direct another movie. He had some minor acting roles in a couple of Steven Soderbergh movies. But as I said, Aqualad doesn't exist in our universe, so he wasn't to blame for Wendell B. Harris not getting another chance. It was just systemic racism. 
uh, Wendell B. Harris is black, and mm. uh, it was a movie that dealt with racism, and uh, people didn't want to spend money on it or take a risk on that, and he never got a chance to direct another movie. Oh, man. So, Aqualad, hats off to you for making the DC universe a better place than our universe. Be a lot more fun if he was the reason that uh, that, that movie didn't get picked up. But he wasn't. Yeah, we could really use an Aqualad these days. Or several. But that is what Aqualad was probably up to in January of 1990 in the DC Universe. Corey, thanks for uh, coming over and reading this comic book with me. You are welcome. I appreciate you very much making the trip. We were planning on recording remotely, and then my internet went out, and then as you were on your way over here, it came back. But it was lovely to see you face-to-face, and thank you for making the effort and getting over here. I really appreciate it. It was a good time. Good. I had a good time reading this objectively not great comic book with you. Likewise. And we're coming up on the 50th issue of the new Teen Titans. That will be the third 50th issue of a Teen Titans comic we've done. I was just going to say, it really feels like longer. (laughs) Yeah, it'll, it'll be like, I don't know what the actual number is. My brain's not good at the math, even though that one's pretty much just addition. But we've read a lot of Teen Titans comic books. And uh, there's some surprises coming up for the 50th issue, which I'm looking forward to hitting with you. I'm also looking forward to next week when we'll be hitting up a Defenders comic book and seeing how that team up with Captain America progresses. Mm. I think that'll be nice. It'll be interesting to see how the shadowy shitheads from our government are fucking things up as opposed to the shadowy shitheads from the Russian government in this one. guess they're not so shadowy. The Soviet ones in this, Hammer and Sickle, not real big on subtlety. Nope. But uh, either way, I'm looking forward to picking up that Defender stuff. Same. If you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically. Can you imagine? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up on various aspects of the socials media. I try to maintain an active presence on the Twitter and the Facebook and all that stuff. I was thinking the other day, I'm grateful for Twitter in a lot of ways. It's helped me realize that I don't have one thought a day. (laughs) Oh, is that, does it tell you to do that? Oh, no, it doesn't tell me to. I was just trying to and I can't. I I don't have one thing to say every day. Maybe I'll just start tweeting the words Dick Raven. Like, once a day. No. No? No. Twice a day? You don't want to dick raven your audience. No? I don't think so. I don't know. I know we're still sorting it out, but it seems wrong. (laughs) Yeah, you're probably right. Well, you can still find me on the socials media. Maybe at one point I'll say dick raven. (laughs) But not, like, at you. No, no, with you. That sounds weird, too. Yeah, just at the world? I don't know. Sometimes I'm on the social media, so you can try to find me there. Just uh, search for Tighten Up the Defense and uh, see what happens. And hey, if you can't find me on the socials media, there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. I'm going to be in there. We always have been. Corey, what are you doing in people's hearts this week? Oh, I probably tidied up already. Uh Uh-huh. Probably already taken a nap. I think so. I think I'm going to be enjoying a 
tall, cool IPA and just watching Law and Order nonstop. Do you have a favorite Law and Order? No. You don't. You don't prefer a classic over SVU or? I actually haven't watched a ton of it. I'm not a huge uh, crime show person. I'm not either, but it was just so omnipresent at a time where there were not that many channels that uh, I feel like I've watched a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like I think I've watched every episode of Frasier, but I was never really that into Frasier. Yeah. Well, I don't like the subject matter, but I do like, uh, what's his first name? Maloney? Robert? Chris. Chris Maloney. Yeah, I like him too, from uh, Wet Hot American Summer. Yeah, I think of him as the fridge humper mostly, but... Yeah, I, it's I, always I... weird to see him wearing a suit. Uh-huh. It's like, wait, he's a cop? And he's so serious. Come on, was he going to hump that fridge? Exactly. Yeah. So that's that probably gets my nod. Yeah, I like that. I like Richard Belzer too. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's Nice good. to see him. Yep. I remember him from Homicide, Life on the Streets. Munch. Yeah, that's a funny name. Uh-huh. Munch. Yeah, that was a good show. Yeah, that's what I'm going to be doing in people's hearts. Munching. Oh, yeah? All yeah, right. probably going to make some rice-a-roni. You know, reading this comic book takes place in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I made rice-a-roni for the first time the other day. Ever? Yeah, I don't think I'd ever actually made it before. Wow. When we were growing up, me and my sister were kind of latchkey kids, and my sister would make herself rice-a-roni, and I would make myself macaroni and cheese. And so uh, I would have rice-a-roni. We would split our bounty. You just hadn't made it yourself. Right. Ah. Yeah, I'd eaten it, sure. She would put an egg in it, and it was really good. I don't know what stage in the rice-a-roni making process you put the egg in. It seems like it would be weird, because like when you saute the vermicelli noodles at the beginning, it seems like if you put the egg in then, then the egg will get all wet when you add the water. But I don't want a steamed egg. I'm having trouble. Is it like a fried rice egg, where there's like little like scrambled egg fragments in there? Yeah. yeah you can just put it in whenever. Hi, this is Editor Hub here in the future. I got some clarification from my sister. It turns out she would fry the egg separately and then add it in at the end with some duck sauce. She would also add frozen peas and, if we had them, a chopped up imitation chicken patty. Bon appetit! Well, that's what I'm going to be doing in people's hearts. And now you know the rest of the story. Corey. Gotcha. Because it rhymes. Yeah. Yeah. You're so proud of your smiling. I made a ride. It's a good feeling. It is. If you would like to support the show monetarily, tough to find a rhyme for monetarily, especially if you want to go three syllables deep. Like if you were afraid of animals, it would be fauna scarily. Oh. But that doesn't make sense in any kind of context. Nope. It's still a pretty good rhyme. Yeah. You can check us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to all kinds of bonus material. There is the podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. There is also a whole bunch of bonus videos that I've made that are me doing reviews of classic comic books. Those are a lot of fun to do i hope you enjoy watching them uh but there is just a ton of bonus material up there that uh we do as a thank you to you that's right you for supporting the show it means the world to me that those of you who are in a position that you can donate that so many of you have and it really does make it possible for us to keep doing the show so thank you so much for doing that and uh i hope you like the stuff that i made for you 
Because I made it for you. Because I care. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, Corey, what's the way people could do that? You can tell your neighbors that they should listen to the show. Yeah, stop and knock policy. Knock on their door. Mm -hmm. Say, hi, I'm your neighbor. Mm -hmm. We've never met before. But my name is, and then say your name. You know your name. That's not hard. Mm -hmm. Or make one up if you're not comfortable. Oh, totally. Make up a cool name. Mm -hmm. Say, hi, you don't know me. I'm Dick Wolf. I'm Dick Jaguar. Oh, wow. Yeah. I've been living next door to you for quite some time. And first of all, you know what? I like the music that you play. It's not too loud, but I can hear it a little bit. The walls are thin here. But uh, I, I really appreciate your taste in music. And I don't want you to turn it up because there are times when I'm trying to sleep. But the volume you're playing it at is just fine. Judging from your taste... There's this show, this is kind of out of nowhere, I know, and this seems weird, but there's this show called Tighten Up the Defense. I don't even know how to describe it, but it's incandescently brilliant. <laughs> I love it so much. The hosts, my God, what hosts it has. I can't say enough nice things about them. And I know this seems weird, but I feel like you would really appreciate it. It's not for everybody, but you... There's something about you. I think you'd like it. And I love you very much. Yep, so you can do that. Yeah, just uh, knock on your neighbor's door. Say that. Mm -hmm. Write it down. And I hope you were taking notes because the other way that you can help us out would be to leave a review. And you can write exactly what Hub just said to your neighbor. Yeah, yeah, write that down. Leave it as a review uh, wherever you listen to this podcast. Or if you don't have time to write all that down, just write... Dick Raven. Five stars. People think to themselves, a five-star Dick Raven? I gotta check this out. I've never rated a Dick Raven higher than three and a half stars. I mean, it's no Forrester. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, Captain Crank. Boo. Guy's a real piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Well, I said he was level 10. And wear five stars. So like, star Yeah, no, those are different rating systems entirely. Totally different things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're not, it's not, I didn't mean to put us in the same boat as Captain. No, Crank. no, because he owns that boat. That's why he gets to call himself Captain Crank. I'm not getting on that boat. Well, that's one reason he gets to call himself Captain <laughs> Crank. The the other one, you know. Big rusty penis. Yeah, it's a big rusty penis. Uh-huh. Yeah. Goodbye! Bye! <laughs> and they knew it. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? <laughs> I was trying not to make eye contact. <laughs> I? Are my eyes that hilarious? I just, I don't know. Okay. I just gotta... Give me that again? Yep. All right. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> <laughs> Are you thinking about the cat? I am. <laughs> <laughs>